1: I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in British Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. When he appeared before the British House of Commons in the wake of the Stamp Act crisis, Benjamin Franklin reminded his audience that the American colonies were governed at the expense only of a little pen, ink, and paper. They were led by a thread. As the British sought to come to grips with an expanded American empire in territories ceded by France at the end of the Seven Years' War. They were also confronted with an even larger and more complex imperial domain in Asia, one that was fashioned out of a centralized pattern of Mughal rule. In The Formation of the Colonial State in India, Scribes, Paper, and Taxes, 1760 to 1860, Hayden Belnoy digs beneath imperial formation on a macro level and looks at the fiscal management of empire. He shows that it rested on a paper foundation. The British colonial state in India was defined as much by bureaucratic processes as it was by military power, ruled not by soldiers but by scribes. Not only does he shed new light on the foundation of British power in Asia, but the book opens up striking comparisons with the relatively weak imperial state in North America and also reveals the origins of the bureaucratic colonial state, that emerged in sub-Saharan Africa. Hayden Belnoir is professor of history at the United States Naval Academy, and he joins me from outside Annapolis, Maryland. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, Charles, thanks for
1: having me. Great. I love this book, um, and I just want to cover its its arc, uh, if we can, over the next 20 or so minutes. So first, I just want to begin with the power that is there when the British uh, gain control or increasingly gain control, and that's the Mughals. Can you talk a little bit about Mughal rule, how revenue was central to their empire?
0: Sure. So um, in looking at the, the Mughal Empire, which... Um, it was largely a, what they called a Timuri dynasty with, you know, sort of ancestry from Central Asia, Tamerlane and loosely Genghis Khan. Um, you know, the Mughal Empire by the 1600s is really what one famous Bengali historian called a Kagaz Raj, or a paper empire. Um, revenue was central to it, largely because it was, aside from being to somewhat degree a patrimonial sort of ruling empire, with uh, with an emperor sort of and, and, and it was also a large standing armed military camp and the revenue that paid for this military force across India and increasingly into the southern Deccan Plateau in the late 1600s was agrarian taxation so you know what you really see that revenue is, is really central because it not only pays for the army but it pays for the court for example it pays for the the aesthetics the cultural formations uh, and consumption at the court, not just in the central court, but also in provincial regions and capitals as well um, throughout. Uh, and it also is a source of religious patronage, for example, to under the Mughals being nominal Muslims uh, of a mostly Sunni persuasion to uh, madrasas, for example, Islamic seminaries to support the ulama, the Muslim clerics, uh, patronage of the sushi, Sufi dargas or shrines to which Uh, The Mughal court had very central connection, close connections, particularly the Chisti Sufi orders, Um, and also more famous monuments, obviously, such as the Taj Mahal, uh, which is called the world's largest monument to love, as sort of cheesy as that sounds. But these were all paid for with um, agrarian revenue. Um, And one way it becomes very central to them is because what you see in Mughal India, and, and the book tries to make the argument, is that. You know, it's a far more paper based and procedural uh, form of revenue and fiscal administration than I think scholars, Mukhal historians and even modern historians of India have allowed for. Um, you know, I dispense pretty quickly with the idea of this uh, a patrimonial sovereignty of the Mukhal emperors, that it's far more than that, that it's much more paper driven and that it's much more procedural. Um, because a lot of this is shaped by the Persian sort of courtly language and, and traditions of fiscal management. And And that's what I really start to see and argue, at least in the first chapter, that there's sort of materiality of administration in Mukhal, India, that uh, things are generally documented, even if a lot of the documents don't survive today. Uh, When it's written, they're largely in Persian, for the most part, if they have anything to do with imperial revenue. And because when any state expands its fiscal scope, it needs to be increasingly documented and recorded. So in the 1600s, I try to track up that there's a massive expansion of this um, what so this paper empire and this materiality to Mughal fiscal administration, um, and that what you start to see is that in the 1600s and particularly the early 1700s, um, with the rise of regional kingdoms, this what we call the successor kingdoms to the Mughal central uh, power, such as Avad, for example, Bengal, the Marathas, for example, uh, Misuru in the south. You know, they're all sort of, in a way, taking this idea of increasing fiscal extraction and taking it to new lengths starting in the 1720s and 30s. Um, so I really see, in a way, a, a much more paper-bound and procedural, almost like proto-bureaucratic uh, form of fiscal administration than I think a lot of the Mughal, existing Mughal historiography has allowed for. That has tended to focus more on the personalities of emperors, such as Akbar versus Aurangzeb, for example, One, supposedly two ends of an extreme. Um, uh, Religious patronage, for example, uh, the Sufi, you know, the court culture, the connection with Sufi shrines and brotherhoods, for example. I really want to put, and the book tries to make, put fiscalism and paper as central to Mukhal power, because then it explains later transformations that we get to um, in the 18th century.
1: And the way you achieve this sort of shift in perspective is to offer... Uh, yeah, the, the book revolves around the scribes. Um, and so I wanted you to talk a little bit about who, who were the scribes, uh, who were they socially, and why were they so uh, important and vital to this this whole uh, huge process?
0: Um, absolutely. The, the, the scribes that I tended to focus on and uh, largely came out of sort of the publication of my first book when on North Indian education, I noticed there was a particular group of scribes that are very prominent in education and government service. They're called Kaisthas and Kayasthas are kind of a looser uh, sort of scribal community across North India with other sort of, you know, represent with other branches of them out in Western India and the Maratha domains, but also in Hyderabad in the South with the Mathur Kaisthas. They were a very interesting group because they, they don't fit a typical sort of elite or subaltern sort of social classification. Um, They rank very high traditionally with Brahmins in terms of literacy and learning, but it was a very different type. But they tended not to be landless, for example. So they're kind of what I call middling scribes to some degree. Um, And these kaisthas are very interesting because, I mean, I got to know a lot of them and their families very well on my numerous trips to India. Uh, And some of them, uh, as I acknowledge in the book, opened up their family histories and their papers, for which I'm eternally grateful. Um, What you tend to see with them is that they trace their origins to a particular king, King Chitragupta, And they all see the 12 North Indian branches see themselves as descendants of either one of Chitragupta's wives, for example. So they are very squarely, in terms of nominal religious identity, uh, they are Hindu. But what happens under the the Mukhal period, and you start to see this, some scholars have argued, and I find it very convincing that after the 1300s, 1400s, with the emergence of Turkic sultanate rule over North India and from Delhi, is that a lot of these, uh, Caius the scribes, who tend not to be big landowners, and they don't have the elite credentials of being a high caste, officiating uh, caste like Brahmins, for example. So they tend to start to learn Persian, which was you know the language of the Mughal court, and particularly Of fiscal revenue administration. So they start to not only learn Persian, but that kind of connects them with a broader, what we call, uh, for want of a better term, an Indo Islamic or an Indo Persian uh, cultural universe. So they become over time conversant in Persian. They acquire jobs, for example, that are generally passed down hereditarily. Uh, They also uh, get exposed to the connections that come from that through Sufi associations and circles of devotional practice, for example, Uh, a number of them actually as well, uh, and I tried to bring this on the book, uh, adopt a lot of what we would call Islamicate names, for example. So you could have various kayasthas who, for example, have, uh, you know, for example, uh, traditional Hindu names, but they'll add uh, a surname such as um, Raizada, for example, or Mukhlis, uh, for example, uh, and these are you know, very much Persian and Arabic origin words. So, um, they kind of become a middling group and they became known as sort of an Islamized, for want of a better term, uh, Hindu scribal, um, caste. And what's interesting about them is that they also further partake in this by joining in what I've called the culinary sort of associations that come with being Persian literate and being connected loosely with the court. Uh, a good number of them are non-vegetarian, okay, and a number of them uh, acquire a reputation, not all the subcasts, but some of the 12 the subcasts acquire reputations for preference for red wine, for example, drinking at the court, for example, uh, which was certainly part of a good number of, Mu- a part of Mukhal court culture, even though it wasn't a predominant factor of it. Um, and that these the groups serve a very, very important purpose, uh, not just to the Mughal empire in the 1600s, but Also, very importantly, to the regional successor kingdoms that emerge, uh, particularly across northern India and eastern India, such as Bengal, but particularly Awadh, for example, um, and sort of even in sort of western India, to some degree, the Maratha domains. These Kayastha groups really become dominant at the middle tiers of fiscal administration. And there's a particular office, which was by no means standardized across India, but it was known at the village and district uh, level. It's called the Kanungo. Which, and the Kanungo is from Persian, which literally means uh, of the law or of the custom. They were, in a way, the registrar. They had all the records of who paid what taxes, when they paid, and very most importantly, uh, who didn't pay and and, and and what dates. And so they became very powerful in local districts. And because they're the connecting link between the Mughal court and treasury and what we call the Mufasil or the hinterland, and the agrarian world... They are very, they're, they're extremely important to the Mughals, and even more important to these uh, 18th century regional successor kingdoms who are even more intensely than the Mughals, trying to extract more revenue to build up their regional states and their armies.
1: So you have this, this sort of dense network uh, of scribes that are, that are in place, and then we have this tremendous shift in the middle of the 18th century. And it's that the British become uh, the dominant or a dominant power in in this continent, and the East India Company is is the major conduit of British imperial power in India. How does it how does it establish itself as the presiding power? Okay,
0: so that's a very good question. Now, this has obviously been a question that has been uh, debated by not just historians of british imperial history but intensely by historians of south asia is you know the question of the rise of british power and and the colonial state and what explains it and so many other ways have uh, and approaches have been taken my approach which i hopefully is somewhat convincingly novel is to look at sort of you know fiscalism as state capacity and what i argue and this is particularly chapter 3 is that uh, because of its inherent nature as a joint, as, as someone called the merchant sovereign sovereign merchant, East India Company, that because it technically had a responsibility to its shareholders, revenue became very important to it, particularly after it requires the rights of the 24 Parganas, the sub districts uh, in Bengal in 1756 uh, after uh, Palashi, and then also again in 1765 after the ascension to Divan, the right to collect revenue in Bengal and all the legal authority and sovereignty that comes with that. So what I see the company setting in is coming in at a time where Indian states are already increasingly taxing and being much more uh, strict and much more extractive when it comes to getting revenue to build up the regional states. And in a way, the East India Company finds itself at the right place at the right time because it also wants to do the same thing. But unlike Indian sovereign kingdoms, it has no connection or feels, broadly speaking, uh, no uh, sense of accountability to its Indian subjects. So what you start to see is that the company, um, one thing that they do immediately, and you see previews of this in Bengal after the 1760s, it's no coincidence that within five years of the acquisition of Divan, uh in Bengal in 1765, there's a terrible famine in the late 1760s that kills upwards of two, two million people. And... The closer I look at that, it looks to me more like fiscal, a, a sort of a clash of different fiscal models and moral ethos when it comes to state taxation. Um, so when you see these early trends in Bengal, I focus mainly farther up country, northwest, um, in sort of the Gangetic region. What we call the Doab um, sort of the Gangetic region uh, with major cities such as Benares, Jaipur, Allahabad, for example. And what I tend to see is that you know the territories the company acquires after its regional wars with awadh particularly in 1801 and 1803 that would later become the central core of what today are called is called uttar pradesh was then called the united provinces is that these are some of the first officers because the british are, and the company state are so in a way bookish about the way they understand india which is another sort of whole subgenre when, in terms of understanding your uh, british orientalism in india because the british are so bookish you know they don't want to learn the um, in a way early on the human aspects and, uh, and dynamics of taxation or negotiating with people. They just want the records. They want to know who paid what. And the officers who largely have what I call this fiscal intelligence are Caiostas because they are not elite. Okay. And, but ni- they're neither elite and nor are they subaltern. They're sort of middling in a way. And they are placed very well to basically furnish the company state with all the fiscal intelligence it could possibly need. And this is very important for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that uh, when they get all this information, what the British tend to do immediately is to document it on a more intense basis than either the Mughals or 18th century successor kingdoms ever did. And so they use this fiscal documentation to do a number of things. Firstly, to uh, make a more rigid and unforgiving taxation system. So previously what you had before the company took over and all these fiscal practices uh, you know, was that you know largely taxation in India was still largely shaped by Islamic law and particularly the Hanafi school of Islamic law, which never really saw land as a commodity. It was seen as like a gift from God, and humans' rights was uh, was mainly to uh, maintain the vegetative powers of that land, basically. But the British largely bring a new uh, concept of property that is very much as a commodity, and because of that, you start to see the auctioning off of lands of people who own property and they can't pay the rent, for example. The, other, the second thing that these records bring up for the company that they find so useful is that the kaisers, you know, they do a little dealing themselves. They're very happy to point out who didn't pay taxes before and who's been evading taxes. And this earns them some sort of credibility and goodwill with British officials and districts, uh, you know, uh, trying to sort of negotiate revenue assessments and agreements and things like that. So that places them very well, and they get quickly gravitate towards the company state. And the company state makes these uh, Kayestas of various types, mostly kanungo Kanungos, but also the very smaller village level, the patuari, who's sort of like the village accountant. You know, they quickly kind of get attracted to the company state, and the company kind of like starts paying them salaries, basically. This And they, they also, this is one thing I noted reading the records of the, the Kayesta families, but also the revenue records uh, for the East companies Company is that, you know, they noticed that all these kinds of cunungos, they've been doing the same job for hundreds of years, pretty much. So, you know, wanting to maintain stability, a lot of British district collectors and officers are just trying to keep it that way. Um, and then there's a third aspect that comes up that's very significant uh, from this furnishing of records. It's, it's mainly that um, the British use these records to basically legalize the fiscal management of wealth in India, taxation, Previously, on, you know, under the Mughals and 18th century successor kingdoms, you know, fiscalism was not a legal category in the sense that it is in most states today. If you fail to pay taxes, you've breached a law or a code of some sort. It wasn't, didn't quite work that way. There was a lot of drawn out negotiation previously. Um, that, you know, for example, sovereigns in India generally did not seize the lands of defaulters. And if they didn't pay on time, they just made further accommodations or they might appoint someone in the extended family to serve as the representative of those lands. But the company has no patience for this uh, at all. So to not pay on time was a legal infraction. And one of the major... You see this immediately in the 1760s and 70s in Bengal when the British decide... and the company decides to uh, haul defaulters in front of British magistrates, it, the Indians are at a loss. They don't know what to make of this. This is very strange to them, you know? Um That it's somehow in default, and you're hauled in front of a judge. You're dishonored in their neighborhood because everyone sees you being taken away. For example, so that's the third thing. It's the legalization of fiscal revenue, and when you put all these three things together, you really see that the success of the company um, in the late 1800s, early 19, late 18th century, early 19th century, is in their building up the the fiscal state capacity, and that's where I think the third chapter really makes a novel argument is that rather than look at imperial ideologies or, you know, debates over Orientalism or uh, I think what uh, uh, Professor uh, Bernard Cohen called the investigative modalities of the colonial state, this is actually much more important because it's a real tangible life on the lives of not only these scribes, but the people who are under them, who work the land uh, and and the vegetative powers of the soil. It's, you
1: know, striking. I've I've taught... Um, the British Empire in, in India over the years, and, and one of the puzzles always was uh, how, why there was no resi- no mass resistance. Um, you have a huge population compared to a very small British ruling population. So, I mean. Franklin's comment that I, I used in the introduction where Franklin comments, that you know, the British empire ruled the colonies by pen and ink and paper. How is that also true of the East India company?
0: I, I think it's a, it's, it's fairly apt actually um, because all of this pen ink and paper is really used to enhance and further entrench the fiscal capacity of the colonial state. Um, and uh, for example, to give you an idea the building up in certain parts of, The Doab region of India. You know, after the the territories come under Company power in 1805, within 15 years, actually, in places such as Delhi, for example, the revenue rates have gone up 142 percent. In a place called Bundelkhand, it went up 222 percent. So I mean, and this is actually used as a tool with the scribes and retinue that come along with the district collector to document everything. This is used to, in a way, quote unquote, pacify a rebellious countryside to some degree. Um, and, and that is very, so I see certainly pen, paper, and ink as not just a fiscal tool, but also a tool of the state, of the colonial state, to in a way ensure that there is no rebellion in the countryside as much as they can. Now, there are rebellions, there is movement, um, that people simply flee the taxman in many cases. Uh, some of them try to uh, destroy records that would, you know, otherwise reveal their holdings and open themselves up to greater assessment and taxation. Um, But I, I, and I think what's interesting to think about is that there, there is actually a lot of movement and resistance, but it's, it's low level and low level and simmering. But, you know, the pen, ink and paper are the tools that the company state uses to kind of, in a way, keep it from boiling over, at least till it does more explicitly in 1857. uh, Very interestingly enough. Um, And and I think that's fair. And and I think the other reason it's very powerful as well um, has to do with one of one of the more important aspects that is a byproduct of this entrenchment of what I call the fiscal state. And and that's really what chapter four talks about. It's the it's the colonial archive and it's this documenting uh, this regimenting and organization of knowledge, particularly fiscal knowledge that in a way makes the company state so powerful. And and here, naturally, I engage with some of the more well-known uh, sort of contributions to the colonial archives, such as Bernard Cohn and Nicholas Dirks, for example. And and I, I, I I'm I see it as much more complicated than simply ethnology or caste categories, that what builds up the colonial archive from a very early period is the fiscal management of, of, of agrarian wealth in India. And it's so intensely documented from a very early stage and it has more, in a way, uh, reverberative effects because it's not anything that goes away. Everyone always has to pay taxes to some degree. And if anything, taxes tend to go up rather than down. And that's certainly what you see uh, in northern India and the, in, in the Dwabi region that I look at. So you know, I like to call it in one section, you're know, accounting for every grain, no pun intended. This is exactly what the colonial archive sort of emerges. They classify soils. Grains you, know, grains, you know, sort of uh, you know, sands, for example. There's a lot of, like, protocol for fiscal procedure, you know, rent rolls, what they called in Persian, that's still used later on, deep in the colonial period, the term has that's that literally means is and was in Persian. Um, it's basically a rent roll, who paid for what, and the, the detail is mind-boggling. I mean, at, thir- at first I thought it was facetious, or you know, is this just a joke or something? But it's not. It's very, very real. Um, and you see this taxonomy that incorporates Indian surveys, for example. And that in a way, these chiestas are actually very crucial in this tax of taxonomizing of agrarian and fiscal knowledge, because particularly after um, in the former territories of Awad, after 1857, after the rebellion is suppressed, these Kaestas are sent out across the former Nawab's domains to basically start documenting and cataloging who owns what. And how much did they owe? So part of the pacification of the old epicenters of the Great Rebellion of 1857 was pr- pr- partially a fiscal pacification done through ink, pen and paper uh, with the assistance of these Caius, the scribes, um, who are now by the 1860s and 70s, starting to lean away from that to some degree from that like Indo-Persian and Indo-Muslim heritage into something that's more English speaking uh, that revolves around diaries, clocks, for example, and the rhythms of the modern of the late nineteenth century colonial state. It,
1: listening to you talk about this, I'm, I'm this is an aside, but it sounds an awful lot like the Doomsday Book uh, after the Norman Conquest, where they go around in England assessing the worth of absolutely everything to find out what they've got. Uh, but that's you know that's for a medievalist to sort out. <laughs> uh, you know. I know we're dealing with a, a an immensely complex uh, ethnically diverse geographically expansive continent and I I'm, I'm aware that the East India Company takes some time to establish its rule in various places it's not an overnight thing but finally um, what can you what what light does this co- this powerful continuity this one particular sinew of power that emerges in the fiscal state. How does it help us to understand the transition between East India company rule towards um, the Raj?
0: Okay, Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, in my own honest opinion, and and I kind of argue this in, in the fifth chapter of the book, is that there's actually quite a bit of continuity because those fiscal practices, those taxonomies, those way of those ways of managing India's agrarian wealth through the the prism of fiscalism have already been established so what you see is basically a deepening and extension of those very same processes um so I think what really helps explain it I mean you know traditionally I mean I remember this in graduate school as well it was traditionally explained as you know constitutional changes you know from a company to a sovereign entity for example or a uh, You know, uh, you know, or the work that by Thomas Metcalf, for example, ideologies of the Raj. How did the attitudes change? Uh, I don't think there's actually much change when it comes to fiscal practice and management. I think there's a a great deal of continuity actually, Um, because what you see is when you get into the, you know, the gen two generations after the 1860s, is you see a number of things. The fiscal practices are still largely continuing. Okay those fiscal practices don't really get upended until after Gandhiji's campaigns after 1920. In all honesty, they largely continue. In fact, they pick up in a, a du- with double intensity during the, um, uh, the First World War, actually, um, where you see an even greater extraction of agrarian revenue from the countryside than India ever witnessed, I think it's fair to say. Um, so you see this continuity. You also, though, see the continuity of these Caius the scribes. They become, in a way... The, the pensmen of the of the Raj, they are people who become so prominent within fiscal and legal administration with North within North India that every British office uh, civilian officer or district collector knows who a kaisa is and all the jokes and reputations that come with it. For example, which we don't have time unfortunately to go into in this podcast. But you know there are many examples that the British office you know uh, district collector say you bring the kaisa with you because they are preferred for their uh, they're respectable, they're well-dressed, and everyone in the village listens to them, basically, because they know the power that these kaiestas have in terms of that fiscal repository of knowledge on paper. Um, the other continuities you see is that kaiestas become some of the dominant group uh, in the Indian civil service, in the, in the spots that are available and open to Indians, actually. Uh, there are more Kaistas in the ICS than Brahmins by 1900 in North India. And they acquire this reputation for being, you know, vakils, lawyers, for being deputy assistant collectors. Some of them become magistrates, for example. Um, but you really start to see that they become so important that even the, uh, who is it, the very famous um, uh, founder of the Indian National Congress, Alan Octavian Hume. This is a great quote, which I put in Chapter five's quote, that they became so prominent that he got angry. He said he wanted the colonial government to tax the Caiesthas who grew rich by the pen. Uh, but they're too cowardly to wield the sword to come assist the people who put them in power, mainly the British. So there's a bit of reaction to guys at the end. They're even, in fact, banned from recruitment into the Indian army at one point um, because they're so predominant in the role of government that it it, it creates a lot of tension with other groups in India, particularly North India. Um, So you see a lot of continuity right there um, and that they become, in a way, kind of the dominant face of that nexus between English or colonial or Anglo vernacular education and state employment. You know, if you went to a local district office or a magistrate, you know, I mean, you could count that. You could easily count the case right there. That's the idea is that they become so prominent that you just can't ignore them and that this draws attention to them. And then later on uh, lots of controversy over, you know, what they eat, what they drink, for example, what language do they speak, what, what, what script do they write their language, for example? So th- there is a remarkable amount of continuity, particularly when you look through the prism of fiscal practice and, and fiscal capacity of the Raj.
1: I've been speaking with Hayden Belmore, the author of The Formation of the Colonial State in India, Scribes, Paper, and Taxes, 1760 to 1860. It is a crisply written, tightly researched, very informative book that anybody who is interested in the British Empire globally should and must read because it provides powerful insights and you won't look at the period or India the same way. Hayden, I appreciate you joining me.
0: Thanks very much, Charles. It was a pleasure.